last course is focused on the Lord being our salvation, and we've been uh, preaching a series of messages on from the cradle to the cross on that very subject. The Lord is our salvation. So for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet this morning, we do welcome you, and along with our congregation to begin with, turn with me to Matthew chapter one, number of different passages of Scripture as we try to draw all this to a conclusion this morning. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 reads, the angel telling uh, Joseph, and she will bring forth a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So our salvation, of course, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now turn with me to Mark chapter 2. So our focus has been on how God forgives sins. We take this for granted. But obviously with God, nothing is to be taken for granted. This is a great story of the paralytic and how he was healed. Uh, let's see. Look at uh, verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now that's interesting because in Ephesians 4, turn with me there, Look at verse 32. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So if God only can forgive sins, why are we commanded to forgive sins? We'll look at that this morning. We're going to focus on reconciliation, so we're going to come back to a couple of other passages, but go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. And the first four verses, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken to us by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now that's a question that the author of the book of Hebrews is writing. But in summation to all of this, how shall we escape if we neglect what God has provided to us in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ? And the answer to that is we will not. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are our salvation. 
Your name is Jesus, the one that will save your people from their sins. And we thank you that only God can forgive sins. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. So, first slide, if you would, brother. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to follow along. There are pew Bibles there in the pews. It's the English Standard Version. I'm using the New King James. Uh, a little different, but uh, not so much. But we do want you to follow along because that's important. So, the first Sunday in December, we began a series that examines why God forgives and what it cost God to forgive. Now, forgiveness is a restoration, and that's what reconciliation, we're focusing on that this morning, started last Sunday morning. Forgiveness is a restoration of peace with God. But the peace that God secured for us is never cheap. There is no cheap grace. Grace is costly. There's no cheap mercy. Mercy is costly. There's no cheap love. Love is costly. And so our forgiveness is never cheap. Our peace, our restoration to God is always costly. And so over the Christmas season, but not unique to the Christmas season, we know that the Word became flesh. We talked about words early on. Words are important. We've been looking at specifically four words that teach us about our salvation. And John, in his first chapter, said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God so loved the world that He gave His Son, and in the Son came God's Word, the living Word. Matthew 1, we looked at just a moment ago, from the cradle to the cross, Jesus came to save sinners. I am come that, they, that I <clears throat> might seek and save those that are lost. That's the only reason Jesus came, the primary reason that Jesus came, to save sinners. Jesus, his name means Savior. Doesn't mean teacher, doesn't mean president, king, whatever. It means Savior. We looked at Mark. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's a question that all of us should ask. In fact, the ones that were there said, this man speaks blasphemies. Only God can forgive sins. And yet he's saying, I forgive you of your sins. Now, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Now, we closed out with this last Sunday morning, but I want to pick up with this today. Colossians chapter 2. And then, of course, we just read Hebrews uh, <clears throat> chapter 2 and reminded you that uh, when we neglect the gift of God's salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, we do so at our own peril. And then I've reminded you for weeks that God is no less essential, nor is He inescapable if we reject Him, as if he is as when he is believed, and then we focused on forgiveness. We focused on satisfaction. We focused on substitution. 
And all these words, these wonderful words, lead to salvation from our sins. So, Colossians chapter 2, in him, verse 11, you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him having forgiven you your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, these were contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Now we're going to go into a little more detail here in just a moment. There are four words that highlight a different aspect of each of our need for salvation. And that's the next slide. So let's go there if you would, brother. Jesus said in a lot of his preaching, he said, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, why did he say that? Because he spoke words. So this morning, as we're speaking words and reading words, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. These four words we've been focusing on, propitiation. Propitiation stresses the wrath of God upon sinners. It's our punishment. And we are due that punishment. Secondly, redemption. Our captivity to sin. Our purchase by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Third, justification. Our legal guilt before God. Matters not whether you think you're legally guilty before God. The Bible says you are. It says I am. So this is our pardon. We've been justified. There's no condemnation in Jesus Christ to those that are in Christ Jesus. And last week we began to look at reconciliation. Reconciliation means that at one time we were at enmity against God. We were enemies of God. The book of Ephesians talks about this as well as others. We've seen it here in the book of Colossians. Uh, and we were alienated. We were separated from him. So reconciliation has to do with our position and it has to do with our peace with God. We, those that were far off, we read last Sunday in, in Ephesians chapter 3, have been brought near. These principles expose the magnitude of our need. They don't flatter us. They expose the depth of our depravity before God the Father. Now the fourth word is reconciliation. You can summarize it this way, long summary, but bear with me here. If propitiation focuses on God's wrath being satisfied in the cross, Jesus propitiated. He satisfied the wrath of God. And redemption focuses on the plight of sinners from which the cross ransomed them. We were captive to sin. We needed a ransom. That's the negative aspect of our salvation. And justification focuses on the positive attribute of no condemnation in Jesus Christ. That is a gift that God bestows upon us because of what Jesus does. We don't earn justification. It is a gift through grace. Then reconciliation restores our relationship to and peace with God and each other, not only peace with God, not only the, the uh, uh, vertical component, but the horizontal component and each other. 
because of the three previous words. We're not saved, neither are our sins forgiven until the wrath of God is propitiated. We're not saved, neither are our sins forgiven until we are redeemed. We are not saved, neither are our sins forgiven until we are justified. And we're not saved, and neither are our, our sins forgiven until we are reconciled. So what becomes very uh, commonplace to us, Lord, forgive me of all my sin, which we're going to talk about as we go through the message at this point. Do we ask for, sin, uh, for forgiveness of sins generically? Or do we ask for forgiveness of sins specifically? Now, we looked and closed out last Sunday morning talking about God's covenants, and that's what we see here in Colossians 2. The first covenant that God reconciled. And I mentioned to you that the establishment of the covenants by God have never been eliminated. So he talks about circumcision here in Colossians 2. That was, in Genesis chapter 17, the covenant that God made with Abraham that was the identifying covenant. uh, the surgery, if you please, it means literally cutting, cutting of the flesh, that was performed in Jesus Christ on Calvary. So what we've read here in Colossians covers that. Secondly, Jeremiah 31, which is the new covenant. And the new covenant was granted to us by Christ's violent death. Christ died violently. He didn't die in bed. He didn't die in a hospital hooked to morphine. He died violently and painfully, bearing the wrath of his father and our sins. And so through Christ's violent death and his glorious resurrection, it has changed our spiritual deadness to new life. God gave, gives us a new heart. He creates within us a new heart. That's the new covenant that's found in Jeremiah chapter 31, reiterated a couple of times in the book and uh, the New Testament, rather. Next slide, if you would. Now, the last one we're going to look at this morning, and we closed out with this last Sunday morning, is the Mosaic covenant. It's the law. And I mentioned to you a few weeks ago uh, as we were going through First uh, Peter, and by the way, in a couple of weeks, we'll be back in First Peter. The law has no grace. The law has no mercy. The law has no love. The law is cold. It is a reflection of the holiness of God. And that's one of the reasons, notice what Paul says here writing to the church at uh, Colossae. Look back, if you would. At verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. The law was contrary to us. Having nailed it, Christ rather has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, he disarmed principalities and powers, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. So, There's some beautiful understanding of what Paul is writing about here in Colossians chapter 2, the Mosaic Covenant. God's never eliminated his law, not the moral law, not the moral implication of the law. In fact, without Christ, every sinner will be judged by the moral implications of the law. And we don't want that. 
We want someone to be our advocate, someone to be our mediator. Here, Paul says he's nailed the coldness of the law to his Christ. And he's wiped or he's blotted out. And this, we, we look at this and we say, that's, that's interesting. Okay, so he's, he's taken, he lived the law and he took the requirements of the law which we could not live and he placed them on himself. Yes, that's what it means. But there's far more to it. Turn with me to Second Chronicles, or excuse me, First Chronicles chapter 29. First Chronicles chapter 29. I think I mentioned this at the close, but I want you to, I want to read it this morning. Toward the end of David's life, God appeared to him by the prophet Nathan and told him, listen, You've been a man of war. You will not build a temple. Your son Solomon will build it. But you may accumulate all the materials that are necessary for your son to build it. Furthermore, verse 1, King David said to all the assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. And for the house of my God I have prepared with all my might gold for things to be made of gold. Silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. This is his love offering. This is not the nation of Israel. It's the king's love offering for the building of the temple. Three thousand talents of gold. Now if you do the arithmetic, what we find out that this is about seven billion dollars. Just the gold. So we talk about billionaires today. I heard the other day there were 2,000 or so billionaires on, on planet Earth. Some of you may be that, may be a billionaire. God bless you if you are. I suspect not. Seven billion, just in gold. And the gold was used. Notice what he says. I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver, 3,000 talents of gold of the gold of Ophir, 7,000 talents of refined silver. Now, I did not do that arithmetic. That's a lot of silver. To overlay the wall of the houses gold for the things of gold, and so forth, and so on. This gold was used to overlay the walls of the Holy of Holies. Some of the remaining gold and silver was used to make certain instruments or vessels. 
but most of it was just placed on the wall. Paul said, what has occurred here is that the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we talked about this in 1 Peter chapter 1, is greater than all the accumulated gold that David gave to cover the walls of the Holy of Holies in the temple. He wiped out the ordinances with his blood. What does it cost to forgive us? We can't put a dollar figure on it, but this gives you some idea of the magnitude of our forgiveness. By the way, this is just, this is just the walls. It doesn't account for everything else. If you go and you do a, if you Google the most expensive buildings ever built, you will find that the mosque in Mecca, Islamic mosque in Mecca, cost over $100 billion to build. And you have to go way down the list before you find anything in America. Paul also says he disarmed the principality, he disarmed and spoiled the principalities and powers. Now, a few weeks ago in 1 Peter, we talked about angels. We'll do that again when we come to 2 Peter. What this says is, go back with me to Colossians chapter 2, what this says is, Jesus, in his violent death, attained over fallen creatures, we talked about principalities and powers, and the fact that these are not uh, human creatures, they are created creatures, some and angels that became demons and others. But notice this. He obtained by his death a complete submission to his will over their wills. Now this is very un-American. This is the God we serve. Complete submission over their wills. Now, they don't know it yet, but this is the God with, with, that we serve. The theologian F.F. F. Bruce wrote, Christ made peace, and he did this without violence. He made peace in his death. Christ made peace through pacification of cosmic beings submitting against their wills to a power they cannot resist. We are forgiven because these beings, these principalities and powers, these that war against us all the time, are subdued to the will of Jesus Christ. What a God. So you think Jesus is just a good teacher? It's not what we see here. 
Philippians 2. There's a great hymn in Philippians 2. We are in the book of Philippians on, in our Sunday school class on Sunday morning. It teaches us there that every creature, whether in heaven above, on earth today, or beneath the earth, will one day bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. What Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, he reiterates here to the church at Colossae. Jesus then removed these obstacles. Now, we don't think that, do we? Lord, forgive me of my sin. But we don't think that. Jesus removed these impediments to our asking for forgiveness. Jesus reconciles sinners to himself. Jews and Gentiles are now made one in the church. And the cosmic powers are subdued because of his violent death on the cross. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Next slide. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. We were in here just a few weeks ago, but we need to look at it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Two great passages on reconciliation in the Bible. One's Romans 5 and, and the other is 2 Corinthians 5. You should be able to remember that. Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 5. We looked at, uh, in fact, we read a portion from Romans 5 last Sunday morning, and we'll look at it in, in some notes here in just a moment. Verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Beautiful passage of Scripture. If you're listening, say amen. Amen. If you're listening, say amen. amen. Very important that you hear this. Christ was not made a sinner on Calvary. God cannot sin. Our sins were poured on him, but he did not sin. Please remember that. God cannot sin. Christ is the incarnate one. He is the word made flesh. Therefore, the Bible never contradicts itself. Christ did not become a sinner. He became sin through the sacrifice made for you and I. Three things here in this passage. God is the author of all reconciliation with his gracious initiatives. God alone reconciles us. God alone brings peace back to us. He gives. He appeals. 
and he made Christ to be sin for us. Reconciliation was conceived and born in the love of God. And John 3.16 bears us witness as well as myriads of other passages in the Scripture. William Temple, Bishop of Westminster many, many years ago, wrote, All is of God. The only thing of my very own which I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. And Jonathan Edwards said this in a different way, in a different manner. But basically the same thing is the only thing that you and I contribute to our salvation is our sin. Secondly, God is the author, but Christ is the agent. God was not working through Christ from a distance. In fact, he was present in him as he did the work. God in Christ. We talked about this a few weeks ago. P.T. Forsyth, Scottish theologian who fought in World War I, wrote this. God was in Christ reconciling, actually reconciling. He finished the work. Paul did not preach, nor did Jesus accomplish a gradual reconciliation. It was finished in Christ's death. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit because it is Finished. Period. End of story. No amount of indulgences. No amount of tithes or offerings that we give. No amount of the use of the gifts of spirit that we as believers have brings about the completeness of our peace with God. Jesus does that. In 5.21, which is a remarkable statement, for he made him to, uh, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And another theologian, James Denny, wrote this. Mysterious and awful as this thought is, and it is awful, it is the key to the whole New Testament. He made him who knew no sin. He didn't make him a sinner. He made him to become sin for us. And in this, God's wrath was satisfied. Next slide, brother. One of the beautiful takeaways from this passage of Scripture, God the Father, because of his great mercy, refused to reckon sins to you and I. But he readily reckons sins to his son. I love God. God is such a God of love. This is love. Herein is love, John wrote. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son to satisfy his father's wrath. That's love. Puritan Richard Hooker. Such we are in the sight of God the Father, as is the very Son of God himself. It is our wisdom and our comfort. We care for no knowledge in the world but this that man has sinned. 
and God is suffering. That God hath made himself in the sin of men and the righteousness of God. This is why we are forgiven. The third thing, if God is the author and Christ is the agent, we, the, we are the ambassadors of reconciliation. Like Paul and the apostles, we are heralds of the gospel. We speak in his name and we speak on his behalf. God works through Christ to, receive, to uh, achieve the reconciliation and he works through us to reveal the reconciliation. And there is no forgiveness without being made peace, at peace with God. So when you ask for forgiveness, do you ask it generically? Or do you ask it specifically? You sin specifically. I sin specifically. I don't sin generically. I sin specifically. And so as a believer this morning, remind you again, we are admonished in Scripture to confess our sins before God the Father, and He's just to forgive us of our sins because of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we sin, and we, whether we, before we bed our head at night, or whether we get up, give up and get up in the morning, or whether we're having devotions or whatever, and we pray, God forgive me of my sins. Now, the Lord has forgiven you of your sins. But it's important to recall them specifically. Psalm 51 that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba is a specific prayer, a specific psalm about the sins that he committed. And he said, against you and you only have I sinned. He didn't say, Father, forgive me. That would be even shorter than Psalm 117. It is important that we understand that when we look at our forgiveness of our sins, that obviously God knows what they are. And so we, as humans, being legalistic, we would say, God, you know what my sins are, please forgive me. That doesn't help us in our walk and growth and sanctification. We'll broach this subject more completely when we go, come back to First Peter. But I want you to keep that in your mind this morning. It's like praying for the spiritual health of the Flat Creek family. Do you pray? Remember a year or so ago we were in 2 John, and there 2 John says, I pray for the well-being of the church in this uh, lady that we think was at Ephesus. And then he says, but more importantly, I pray for their spiritual development. Now, we got a lot of need, a lot of physical needs, but our spiritual needs, or what make us like Christ. No forgiveness without reconciliation. Next slide, if you would. <clears throat> so we began these series of messages looking at, uh, let's see. Yeah, cradle, cradle to the cross. You're right. You're good. I'm wrong. 
focusing on forgiveness of sins. And again, be reminded that unless we have peace with God, and I speak to this with all humbleness of spirit this morning, if you're here in this congregation, or perhaps you're listening and watching via the internet, if you do not know God, the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you do not have peace with God. The Bible's very clear. So let's talk as we bring this to a close this morning. I've got quite a few quotes here by, from a message by Spurgeon, but bear with me because I want you to see them. When we talk about forgive and forgiveness in Mark chapter 2, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, it's a different word than found in Ephesians chapter 4. Very different word, as a matter of fact. What we see in Mark 2 is that the word that's used there, there's a Greek word if you're into Greek, but what that word generally means is it means to send forth forgiveness. It's from a transition of one that is mightier than us that is able to forgive, to cause sins to leave. It's what that word means. Who can cause sins to leave but God alone? Plug it into the blank. And only God can do this. In Ephesians, it talks about forgiving one another. That's that horizontal component. And this means to, in fact, the word there, charismaya, comes from the word, uh, the root word from which we get grace. So you see, that's to grant us a favor. It's something that we do freely. It's something that we do in kindness, and it's something that we learn to do as we pardon one another. This is our responsibility. We can't send our sins to someplace else. Only God can do that. And he did this in sending the sins on Jesus Christ. Now, about 150 years ago, maybe, maybe more now, Charles Adam Spurgeon preached a sermon on Romans 5, and we're not going to go there this morning, but he had three truths about reconciliation that I want us to see as we start to close this out this morning. Number one, man, knowing that he needs reconciliation. If you're here this morning and you're unsaved, you need reconciliation. You need to be brought into favor with God, and only Jesus can do that. So how does that happen? We believe the truth of the gospel. That Christ died for my sins, according to the scriptures, and we're reconciled. Now, he said, God's not reconciled to anyone who doesn't believe in Christ. And that's true. But the good news is, the gospel is, he is reconciled to every soul that trusts in Jesus. No wrath remains against believers in Jesus. And all sinners who receive Christ by faith know him to be a true and effectual substitute. He suffered in their place, and he bore the divine wrath that was due to sin. Do you know that you need to be reconciled to God? If you do, then the gospel is the answer. The truth of God is this, that God reconciles every believer because of recon uh, uh, every believer. And because of reconciliation, we are forgiven. 
And the temptation to be suspicious of God and others is needless. You remember we talked about that last week? Three takeaways from Genesis chapter 3 and 4. One of the great sins that, we, that Adam and Eve committed and you and I committed is that we are suspicious of God and of others. When we come to be reconciled of Jesus Christ, we find that's needless. Next slide. Secondly, he said, to be reconciled, it's necessary to become a believer. And what does it mean to believe? Well, it simply means trust. Trust and obey. For there's no other way. Christ made, and we looked at these words a few weeks ago, a full, satisfactory, substitutionary atonement for every soul that trusts in him. I trust him. Therefore, I've received reconciliation the moment I trusted him. I believe God's record concerning his son. That he is able, as Matthew 1 says, to save his people from their sins. And I'm reconciled to God. God is reconciled to me. Peace flows into my soul. I am consciously reconciled to God because of the conviction that God is reconciled through Jesus Christ. That's what we just read in 2 Corinthians 5. I know that whatever my sins have been, and they are far more than I think. One of the reasons that we pray and ask for forgiveness generically is because we know that our sins are far more than we think or can even remember. That they relate on Christ at Calvary. And whatever punishment I deserve, Christ bore for me. I rest on Christ alone. Christ took my sins. Christ was punished for my sins. God laid my sin upon my substitute. And because of this, the Father is not unrighteous to forget Christ's labor of love for me. For me. This love that we talk about in God, he did that for me. God's word declares that Jesus died for his people. I'm one of his. I know and I'm sure that he died for me. Next slide. Because of reconciliation, we are forgiven. Believers gladly accept responsibility and the temptation to shift responsibility is pointless. That was that second one that we looked at last week, was it not? One of the things that sin does is it causes us to shift responsibility. But because of my reconciliation, shifting that responsibility is pointless. Because I am made in the image of God, I have a high responsibility to be accountable to God. And so do you. Thirdly, reconciliation 
It means that we believe the Scripture's record of God and that God becomes our greatest joy. Our love is captivated by his blessed character. And this is the way we accept God. We adore his justice as much as his mercy. We love his holiness as well as his grace. We learn to bless God that he is angry with sin. We bless him that he did require satisfaction. For sin ought to be penalized because sin, left unpunished, would be ignored by mankind. Look about you today. We thank God and we would not have him change in any degree or manner. When we are reconciled to God, we love every characteristic of God. By faith, we met the Lord on Calvary's bloody tree. And our enmity, the fact that we were enemies against God is slain because Christ was made sin for us. We're reconciled. We joy in God. We receive reconciliation because of his grace. Period. There's nothing of our own. We have simply to stand still and receive Christ. And because of free grace of God through Jesus Christ, we can joy in God. Next slide, if you would, brother. When a soul is reconciled to God by Christ's cross, their thoughts of God change. Have your thoughts about God changed? Are you still whining that God has put you into certain circumstances? The thoughts of God change. From the moment sinners see him rightly, from the moment they understand him, and believe me, we can never understand him fully. The moment they delight in him, a soul that is reconciled to God delights and rejoices that he is God alone. This removes a great pressure from you and I. We rejoice in his person. All the attributes of God are themes of joy for believers. God is merciful. We know that. If he weren't, I could never be saved. God's gracious. He can save the souls of our children, just as he saved our soul. When our daughters were born, and I'm sure those of you that know the Lord when your children and your grandchildren were born, one of the first things, no doubt, that you did was you prayed and I trust that you continue to pray for the salvation of your children, grandchildren, or others. I pray that you are praying for the salvation of your friends, that you would be an ambassador of the reconciliation that God has brought to you and will bring to them. 
Are you praying specifically? God's gracious. He's powerful. I don't need to fear. <laughs> Spurgeon closes this sermon. The God that rules on high and thunders when he pleases, that rides upon the stormy sky and manages the seas. We're glad that we have a God who can do all things on our behalf. The Lord is also immutable, without variableness or shadow of attorney. He wrote, I shift and change like the winds and the waves, but he's always the same. You and I can agree with that. We're tossed to and fro. Everything that comes down, every new thing, we've got to have the new thing. We have the fear of missing out. Let's have the new thing. Next slide. Moreover, the Lord is faithful to his promises. We just talked about the covenants that God made with Abraham, Genesis 17, the ones that he made with the restored nation of Israel in Jeremiah 31, the ones that he made with uh, Moses and the children of Israel during the Exodus. God keeps those covenants. He's faithful to promises. He's holy. He's just. He's good. Here too is joy because he's holy. He cannot do an unrighteous act. And if it were unrighteous of him not to save his people for the sake of his anointed, every attribute of God projects his holy, righteous wrath on unreconciled men. But we don't have to endure that. However, every part of the divine character smiles with eternal sunlight upon a spirit which has received the atonement. We're reconciled to God. We learn to glory in his sovereignty. We believe that Yahweh should do as he wills. What can be better as a government for all mankind than the absolute authority of one so good, true, holy, and just? We're not there in America. We will not be there. The Prince of Peace must come for that to occur. He must act according to his nature. His nature and his name is love. Let love reign without limit, and because it's his love, it's sovereign love. Love bears the keys of the government on his shoulders, Isaiah said, and he is called the mighty God. And the soul becomes reconciled to God and joys in God under all circumstances. And in dark times, we can joy in God. As Paul in 2 Timothy said, I have run my race. I have finished my course. Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that I must receive when I pass from this life into the life that is to come. This is God's glory in reconciliation. Jesus' death slammed shut the gates of hell. And it swung open the pearly gates to all that will but repent of their sins, call out to him, and be reconciled.
This is the God we serve. This is how he forgives us. All four of these words that we've looked at teach us that salvation could not have been achieved nor our sins forgiven unless Christ shed his blood to satisfy his Father and to substitute for his people. We began talking about forgiveness of sins. We closed talking about forgiveness of sins. We take this truth lightly as if it was God's place to forgive us. Hmm. But there are obstacles to forgiveness, and unless and until these obstacles are removed, we remain unforgiven. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and Christ is in us the hope of glory. The cradle and the cross. In the cradle lay God. God in Christ. Indeed, as the hymnist wrote, the hopes and dreams of all the years are met in thee tonight. There lay the only one who could propitiate his father's wrath the only one that could satisfy his father, the only one that could qualify as a substitute for mankind, the only one who could reconcile sinners to God. He's the only one that can reconcile sinners to other sinners. He's the only one that can reconcile a fallen creation to its originally intended beauty. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word this morning. We thank you for its truth. Oh, we thank you that we can be reconciled. We thank you that we are reconciled, that we are brought back into your family because of the work of our elder brother. Jesus, we love you. Oh, as we leave this place this morning, may we take that in our hearts and souls that we love you because you first loved us. May we never again, from this moment on, take for granted the forgiveness of our sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? What a great truth. And what a great truth that was wrought in the work of Jesus Christ. Save sinners this morning. Encourage born-again sinners today. In Jesus' name we make this prayer.